Let's find the hope in the scriptures and look at the depth and be impressed by the complexity of God's word as we submit to the simplicity of the gospel. Here's the backdrop to Romans 15. It follows Romans 14. In case you didn't know how to count, that's how chapters work. They just move up by one. Uh, So we did Romans 14 last week, really discussing church unity. The idea that there are things that Christians will squabble over outside of the moral law. So things that are not a part of the moral law and are just matters of personal conscience or conviction, uh, Christians will squabble over those things, and Paul's instruction to us was not to. And for those who maybe were a little bit stronger in certain areas of faith, um, to not hold it against those who were weak in the faith regarding those things. Uh, So for instance, basically, There's a new faction of the church because it started in Jerusalem with the Jews. And Paul has become the apostle to the Gentiles, and he is spreading the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. And the Gentiles are now hearing the gospel and coming to faith in Jesus, yet they didn't have that weight on them that was tied to them from the Jewish traditions. So when it came to things like the kosher laws of dietary needs uh, or the Sabbath or circumcision and things that were related to the Jewish law, many of the Jews were still holding on to those traditions and saying, in order to really be a true Christian or to be in the faith, you must still follow these things, even though they are outside of the moral law. They have nothing to do with morality. They were just part of the old covenant. And Paul is meeting these people who aren't tied to those cultural traditions, who don't care about going to the market and eating meat that was sacrificed to idols because now they worship the one true God and they don't care. And they don't care about eating pork or worshiping on Sunday instead of Saturday uh, because Jesus was resurrected on Sunday. And so they're not tied to these cultural traditions and there's tension. And Paul comes up to these things and he says, they're not really that big a deal. They're not a matter of the moral law. They're just a matter of personal conviction. And so if you are convicted by these things, if you are a Jew who is used to worshiping on the Sabbath and it doesn't feel right to not worship on Saturday, then worship on Saturday. Because if it it feels convicting to you to not do that, well, then you're condemning yourself because you don't have the faith to worship on Sunday. If you're weak in the faith in an area, Uh, exercise that conviction so that you don't condemn yourself before God. If you're strong in the faith, don't condemn those or judge those who are weak in those areas. So if you're weak in those areas, don't also don't push your conviction on everybody else. And the example I used for me last week was uh, in the area of I have never drank. It never felt comfortable to me. It always feels wrong. The scripture, however, says nothing about drinking alcohol. It just says don't involve yourself in drunkenness. Now, it's okay for me to be convicted in that way and to not drink at all. 
It's okay for me to hold myself up to that standard and to follow what I'm personally convicted by because in that area of my faith, I have a weakness. And so I follow my convictions so that I stay in line with my personal convictions so I don't condemn myself before God in that particular weakness. It would be a problem if I pushed that weakness onto everybody else who didn't have that same conviction, who experienced liberty in that area of their life because of their faith in Christ. It would also be wrong for them to push their agenda onto me to give up that conviction. And so the point is, unity is better than division. And when you find these areas where they're not a part of the moral law, unite and support each other rather than condemn each other and dividing over it. That theme continues into chapter 15. So we'll pick up in verse 1. It says, when then, we then, who are strong, meaning those in the faith, particularly Paul was dealing with the, the Gentiles mostly, who weren't constrained by their cultural background, ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. So what he's saying is, even though you might experience personal freedom from those things that aren't a part of the moral law, you should still hold yourself to a standard around those people who do have a weakness as to not make them stumble. Your goal should be to bring edification to all of the body of Christ and so the goal isn't to please ourselves and make ourselves comfortable, but to serve the body of Christ. So when others have those scruples, well, allow them to have those convictions and actually live up to them around them so that you're not making them feel convicted about something. Make sense? Good. And it says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And the point Paul makes here is, if we call ourselves followers of Christ, yet, even though we might be strong in the faith and we might not experience those weaknesses, and in the first century, I think eating kosher law might be a good example. Right? Say, well, this steak was sacrificed to a pagan god. That doesn't bother you. But you're having dinner with a brother in Christ who does struggle with that. Well, don't get the steak that was sacrificed to an idol. Why? Because your goal shouldn't be for you to be comfortable and to please yourself. Your goal should be edification to the entire body of Christ. So, submit to that and allow them to be comfortable and not have their convictions challenged um, because, and here's the important part, Christ limited himself. Christ went through the most uncomfortable thing of all time. God incarnate in the flesh limited himself by becoming a human putting on flesh, and then allowing his own creation to hurl insults at him, tear off his beard, spit on him, nail him to a cross, and as they do so, he says, 
Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. If Christ can limit himself and humiliate himself for the sake of others to hear the good news, then how silly is it for us to divide over small issues, considering what he did? That's what Paul is saying. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So that's verse 3. And that's a quote from Psalm 69, which is a psalm that points to the Messiah. Let me read just a couple of verses from Psalm 69 for you to get an idea of what Jesus went through, what Paul is talking about. <clears throat> talking about the Messiah, David writes, Because zeal for your house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of those uh, who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that became my reproach. I also made sackcloth my garment. I became a byword to them. He's saying that he put on humility and was chastened for the sake of others. He became a reproach to those who he actually came to save. A little bit earlier in verse 7, it says, because for your sake I have borne reproach, shame has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. Meaning the Messiah is going to come from Israel among his own people and they will reject him. That's what this quote from Psalms is about. It's about the Messiah coming from his own people and being rejected by his own people as was predicted. And if Christ can go through that, we can find unity over tertiary matters that are not part of the moral law. So for whenever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So Paul goes on after he quotes a psalm that points out the situation at hand, what Christ did according to the scriptures, which matched the prophecies fitting him. He's saying, search the scriptures, find comfort in the scriptures, because that's where we find hope. What was written in the Old Testament is for us today to know the hope we have in Christ. And that's the thing that matters, not the small, the small arguments that divide. Now, May the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in this first little section, these first six verses of Romans 15, you see the con continued theme of unity is better than division as long as it's not over matters of the moral law. Find ways to not squabble over things. Uh, that we might have disagreements with that aren't part of the moral law. And find ways to submit yourself to not be worried about your own comfort or pleasing your own self or making sure that your point of view is the one that's, that's raised up if it's not a matter of the moral law, as long as you agree on the foundational truths about who Jesus is and what he did for you, then find fellowship. And he ends it with this point that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That the point of being a Christian, the point of giving your life over to Christ, the point of the sacrifice of Jesus that reconciles you to God the Father, gives you a chance to be back in his good graces and experience eternal life. The entire point of that is to bring glory to God, not you. 
And so when we find ways to argue with each other and divide over things that don't matter, we stop giving glory to God because we're concerned with being right. Again, this is about matters outside of the moral law, not parts of the moral law. Because those things do matter. But silly things like kosher laws and uh, the Sabbath, worshiping on the Sabbath or worshiping on the Lord's Day, those two things, really, not that big of a deal. What we should be concerned about is the glory of God and being united in glorifying God. That should be our goal, and we should find unity in that. Verse 7, Therefore, receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that the Lord Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth, to confirm the promises made to the fathers, and to the Gentiles might, uh, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy, as it is written. So, the point Paul gets to here is that Jesus became a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God, meaning. Jesus followed all of the cultural practices and all of the Levitical law to be the Messiah so that we can experience the freedom of his promises. And the interesting phrase that Paul uses is the circumcision for the truth of God because circumcision is a symbol itself. It means literally a cutting away of the flesh, a denial of self. And nobody humbled themselves more than Jesus by becoming a man. By stepping out of the throne room of heaven to come and humble himself and live for 33 and a half years on this earth as a man. Being fully God and fully man, limiting himself in that moment and humiliating himself and humbling himself to serve mankind, to be the sacrifice for our sin. The one who knew no sin became sin for us. There's nothing more humiliating than that. He humbled himself for our sake. And he did that. He limited himself. He cut away his own glory and desire for our sake. So we can cut away our own lusts or fleshly desires to be right in our own status for the sake of others, to confirm the promises made to the fathers so that the, the promises made in the old covenant will be fulfilled through Jesus. And that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Now, when we get to this point, he starts quoting from the Old Testament. And this goes to show how good of a Bible teacher Paul was. He says, For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And that quotation is actually found in two areas of the Old Testament. It's found in uh, 2 Samuel 22 and Psalm 18. And it's both related to David. Because the Messiah is meant to be the son of David. And so the Messiah himself, who is the son of David, Paul is pointing out to the Jews that the Messiah is the son of David. David, the guy you esteem the most highly in Scripture and in our history, wrote this down 
in Psalm 18 and was written about him in 2 Samuel 22. For this reason, I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing your name. And so in this division that exists between the Jew and the Gentiles in the early church, Paul says, see the unity because even Samuel and David both understood that the son of David, the Messiah, had come or would come so that the Gentiles would have an opportunity to praise God. It was always in the plan in the Old Testament for the message and the goodness of God to be spread to all of the nations, to the Gentile nations. And Paul is pointing this out so that the Jews stop putting the cultural background onto the Gentiles and stop squabbling over these things that don't matter because it was always the point for the gospel to go to the Gentiles. And so he brings them in with talking about David and what his son would ultimately do. In verse 10, he says, and again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. This is actually a quote uh, from Deuteronomy 32. So as Moses in Deuteronomy is giving his final sermon before the Israelites are allowed to enter the promised land, in here is a little reminder that though God is giving them a promise and they are his chosen people and they are going into the promised land, that always the Gentiles would worship with the Jew. That the plan was always for God's glory to be spread outside of one nation to all nations. Even Moses knew this in the law. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, laud him, all you peoples. This is from Psalm 117. And again, Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. This is really interesting. This is from Isaiah 11. And in Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah is prophesying shortly before this, that there would be a stump that the root would shoot out from, meaning that the imagery that Isaiah is writing is that this big tree that represents the descendants of David, because David is the one through whom the, line, the, mess, the messianic line will come from, yet this tree will get cut down. Because God is going to exile the people from Israel, out of Israel, into Babylon. And so the tree is going to be cut down. The lineage and the reign of David's line will stop. And it will look hopeless. But somewhere down the line from that tree that was cut down, a root will grow and shoot through the ground. And somewhere down the line, not where the stump is, will shoot up out of the ground and grow because that is the root from Jesse, David's father. And so still a descendant of David, even though all seems lost and all seems hopeless, when the lineage of David is cut off, when the Israelites are exiled into Babylon, yet there will be a future king and a Messiah who comes from the lineage of David, even when hope seems lost, and that is Jesus. And we know that it's Jesus because it says, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him Gentiles shall hope. 
whoever this Messiah is, whoever this root of Jesse is, this son of David is, will not just be a hope to the Jews, but will bring in the Gentiles. This same thing is echoed by King David in Psalm 22, where he points out towards the end of Psalm 22 that the whole world will know Yahweh because of the Messiah who suffers this brutal crucifixion. Because Psalm 22 describes the crucifixion. It states that his hands and feet would be pierced. It states that he would be surrounded by foreigners who would cast lots for his garments. Literally the things that happened at the crucifixion where Jesus' hands and feet were pierced and the Roman soldiers cast lots for his garments. And it calls him a worm, a particular worm, the crimson worm, the toloth worm, which is kills itself, puts its sacrifices itself for its children by clinging itself to a tree as its children eat it, and it leaves behind a red mark. That red mark lasts for about three days before it oxidizes, turns white, and flakes off the tree. It is a description of Jesus' death in Psalm 22, and whoever experiences that death Yahweh will be worshipped by the whole world because of that person. The point here that Paul is making, when you look at the Old Testament and the fact that the Gentiles were meant to be brought in and that the Gentiles would be brought in specifically because of this root that sprouts out from Jesse and from the lineage of David, and you, you combine that with, say, Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53, and you go, my goodness, it is only possible that Jesus is the Messiah. The only possible outcomes are Jesus is the Messiah or no one is. Because the whole world, all the nations, proclaim and worship Yahweh because of what Jesus did. And he's the only person who has ever come from the lineage of David who has brought the message of Yahweh outside of Jerusalem because of the disciples to the Gentiles and to all the nations as described in the Old Testament and as was expected by the Old Testament. So either Jesus is the Messiah or no one is. And Paul is pointing this out to this group and saying, this was always the expectation. Stop putting limitations and stop squabbling over the Gentiles being brought in. They always were supposed to be. Unity is better than division over small points of personal conviction that have nothing to do with the moral law. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the reminder at the end of this section is to the early church, you are arguing. You are arguing about things that really are not foundational truth. You're not arguing over the deity of Christ. You're not arguing over the Trinity. You're not arguing over salvation by repentance and faith by the grace of Jesus Christ. Those things are not the things you're arguing about. You're arguing about things that are not a part of the moral law, the kosher diet and and whether or not we worship on Saturdays because Jesus was resurrected on Sunday. So stop squabbling. The expectation was always that the Gentiles would be brought into the fold. Be excited about that rather than disappointed. Bring unity rather than division where it makes sense. Because the point is, 
what we should all unite to do is to bring glory to God rather than ourselves. And that is the thing we should find hope in. That the God of hope will fill you with the Holy Spirit. That hope will abound in you by the power of the Holy Spirit because of what Christ did. Work together to bring glory to God. So that's it. It's simple. I like to think of it this way. The gospel in many ways is like math. The basic principles of it are very simple. It's easy to look at two apples and two more apples and say there's four. Arithmetic is simple, is the foundation of math. The gospel is easy and simplistic to understand. Yet the problem that it solves and the depth within God's word that we can find is extremely complex. Just like how arithmetic can turn to advanced calculus, advanced calculus and theoretical physics. It can become very complex, but the basic fundamentals are there and true. And if we understand and agree on the basic fundamentals, let's not squabble over silly things. But instead, let's find the hope in the scriptures and look at the depth and be impressed by the complexity of God's word as we submit to the simplicity of the gospel. And let's bring unity as much as we can instead of division because our goal is not glory for ourselves, but glory to God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for these words that you gave Paul. Thank you for reminding us how important it is to humble ourselves because whatever we have to do to humble ourselves to bring glory to you is nothing compared to the humiliation and the humbling you went through to save us. So God, as your followers, we should expect sometimes to be uncomfortable or to be humbled, but we should be okay with it as long as it brings glory to you. And let's seek that first. In Jesus' name, amen.